Welcome back to Season 2 of Knife at the Gunfight. I have a great episode today with Terrence Williams, who you may remember from Episode 2 of Season 1. I'm here back to talk about the fight for pay parity in women's sports in the USA, as well as Colin Kaepernick, the NFL boycott, and Black Lives Matter, and lastly, white supremacy after Charlottesville. But before we get to that, some of you may be wondering, now, Doc Fitz, was that Migos I just heard on the intro? Well, not exactly. I'm going to play for you a clip from a track of 30 Glizzy off a recent mixtape. He's an Oxen Hill rapper who was recently found murdered in the South Baltimore neighborhood of Brooklyn. So this is just a reminder as we talk about political economy of sports, of the ongoing loss from deadly violence, and the work that we still need to do. In this track, you'll hear him refer to Up Next, the late Lord Scooter, who we discussed in the last episode. 30 will end his rap by saying that he plans to be a suspect and not a victim. I guess the best laid plans. In any case, rest in power, Glizzy, and y'all stay tuned. My OG told me to be smarter, smarter, and I got them bands for my lawyer. He give me back to my daughter. It's only right I get this rap shit in order. It's only right I do this for my supporters. My whole hood got off the water. I'ma get a bag, make you niggas upset. I'ma, I'ma get a check, rest in peace up next. Rest in peace up next. Twenty on my neck, rest in peace up next. But I can't be a victim, I'ma be a suspect, nigga. Welcome back to The Knife at the Gunfight, and I have uh, with us today a good friend of The Knife, Terrence Williams, uh, who uh, joined us on our second show, if you remember, on the political economy of sport for 2017. And you know, Terrence, I went back and listened to that show, and uh, I'm a little proud of us. I thought that was a good show, and we touched on a lot of good topics, don't you think? I do, I agree. And I also think that this podcast has really come along nicely. I've really enjoyed a lot of the interviews that you put together. You know, some of the stuff has really just... Uh, been been uh, eye opening. Um, very smart conversation. I'm always up for you know in, intelligent conversation, stuff that can broaden my perspective, and I definitely get that you know when I'm listening to the show. So great job by you. Thank you. I appreciate. it. I'm glad you could uh, join us and be a regular part of it. And I wanted to start by following up on some of those conversations that we had before. Uh, the first easy softball one, uh, you know, for people to remember that you're a Connecticut guy, we talked about the UConn basketball team, and you predicted that uh, the UConn women's basketball team would lose to a random midseason <laughs> opponent like Tulsa. Oh. And, and in fact, Tulane lost to them, I think, by one point. So you were like three letters and one point away from getting right. that right. <laughs> close, close. <laughs> they ultimately, obviously, lost to uh, Mississippi State on that buzzer beater from Morgan William. Uh, and ultimately, the South Carolina, I guess they're the Lady Gamecocks, uh, oh. won the national title. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I thought it was really funny because the day of the UConn-Mississippi State game, uh, Doris Burke, came on to Mike and Mike and she was explaining to the host why Mississippi State was no pushover. And it was one of those things where everybody just kind of let it roll off their back. And I was like, you know what? There's something to this, man. Like, I, I just, I feel like, you know, Doris Burke, she's no basketball uh, novice, like she knows what she's talking about, and if she's telling you that this team is not a pushover, I think that's something that you should listen to. And sure enough, I didn't stay up to watch the game, <laughs> but when I saw the news, when I woke up, I was like, "Oh man, she called that." And so, yeah, man. I mean, you know, nothing lasts forever. Obviously, the greatness of Gino Ariema, uh, the UConn program, and and the parade of awesome players that has come through there. That legacy is not tarnished at all. Sure. Um, but it was definitely one of the shocking moments in sports this year. And I think that the strength of that UConn team is a, is a great thing for women's basketball to have uh, an institution like that. But it's also equally good that it's not so one-sided, that you can have you know a team like Mississippi State open it up and then you know some teams that no one would have predicted have a chance to be successful. So I think ultimately that uh, you know, playoff championship series was a really great thing for, for women's college basketball. 
I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Stuff like that actually helps recruiting, right? Because you don't sure. want players to feel like, oh well, if UConn's not recruiting me, I might not even. I might as well not even try. You know, like you want players to feel like no matter where I go, it, that that's the essence of sport, right? That's what makes sports great. Is the idea that. If I play my assignment, if I work hard, if I do what I'm supposed to do, David can topple Goliath. Mm. And, you know, and we saw that. And I think the timing of that game was actually really interesting. I'm not sure how much people realize this, but I believe that was April 1st that Mississippi State beat uh, uh, the, the UConn Huskies basketball team. Earlier that month, the, uh, the women's... USA national hockey team, which had announced a strike, basically refusing to play in international tournaments unless they got a better deal in terms of wages, benefits, and support, uh, were able to win, even before, right before that April 1st game, uh, a, a new collective bargaining agreement with better wages and significantly better investment in women's youth hockey and the future of women's hockey. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a, another great thing. Uh, you know, as a father to a daughter, it's kind of made me a feminist, right? Like, hmm. um, no one you. is going to ever tell my daughter that she cannot have anything because she's a woman. You know what I mean? And no man is ever going to subjugate my daughter based on her, her sex. You know what I mean? So, so I am all for anything that creates more opportunities to earn money, more opportunities to get an education, to, to gain a world experience, to get, get you know, a, a foot ahead in life. For women, I'm, I'm all for that. So I was really happy to see that they took a stand and, you know, and it actually paid off. And, and also the women's soccer team, USA Women's Soccer, uh, I think it probably was just after that in April where they also were successful in a new collective bargaining agreement, uh, which allows them to make, you know, six figures between two and $300,000 a year as professional players for USA Women's Soccer, which, you know, has been a very successful team, more successful than the men's team, in fact, even though they're not paid as well as the men. Right, it, it, exactly. They're more successful on the world stage. And I think one of the things that people don't um, or may or may not appreciate about what what a team, a dominant team like the U.S. women's soccer team does is the different countries around the world see that. And the women there say, hey, I can do something, too. I can be great. You know, I can I can run around. I can kick this ball. I don't have to just be um, a token in uh, in, in my man's dreams, you know? Um, so these things are important because, uh, people are people no matter where they come from. Right. And so, um, the girls around the world in, in, in all the other countries, they should be able to see that, Hey, you know, these women can earn a good living and they can be great at sports and they can have all the things that come with it because they deserve it. And so, you know, that's, that's right. And that's fair. So I'm all for that. Definitely. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people make an argument against uh, equality of pay, particularly, you know, because that's an issue throughout every profession. And I've heard it argued in sports that, you know, well, the women's television ratings aren't as good. You know, they're not as successful in making money, so they shouldn't get paid as well. Um, I, You know, so I think there's something to that, right? Like, uh, for example, right, like you, you can't make the argument that Maya Moore should be making uh Maya Moore for anybody doesn't know she's a fantastic amazing point guard for the Minnesota Lynx and she uh you know it, you can't make the argument that she should make the same thing that Chris Paul is making right because the NBA makes so much more money than the WNBA right like it it, it may bankrupt the league if you paid Maya Moore what Chris Paul makes right so so there's something to that, right? There's something to the uh, the idea that the pay should be uh, should should be should be relative to what your you know what your sport is making, but you should you know top performers should still be paid well. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you know, to be honest, I think in some ways it's a little bit of a lazy argument, um, this sort of capitalist argument, and right. I, I'll I'll support that for a couple of reasons. One. I think especially when you're talking about the league in general or the sport in total, scared money doesn't make money, right? Huh? If the people in charge of hockey aren't investing in youth hockey, then you're not going to see top quality talent. If they're not you know, pushing this on TV and with advertisers and if they're not investing in it, they're not going to make money on it. And I think that's 
part of what's happened, for example, in U.S. women's soccer, we've seen a lot of excitement and that it's economically viable. But you can, you know, you or me, someone on the street, no one knows when U.S. women's soccer or when, you know, a, a soccer game between women professionally is going to be played. I think most people don't know the name of the league. Right, that's true. <laughs> that's true. So, so that's why I think that uh, definitely for the ones that are successful, demanding pay parity, especially in, in the international stage, I think you know the U.S. women's team, which has done better than the U.S. men's team, deserves to be paid as well as the men. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right about that. And then it's incumbent upon the owners of the league to raise the league profile so that their profit margins can be, you know, similar to what they were before they gave pay raises or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But that's incumbent upon the owners of the league. But you definitely should not uh, short the players because, you know, your league is floundering. Like, that's more... That's more incumbent upon the ownership of the league, the commissioner, whoever, you know, to get the league name out there, raise the profile, get ticket sales up, get advertisers and all that stuff. So, And the other issue that we talked about, and I think to our credit, quite early in the process was the, the protests centered around Colin Kaepernick, his future. And I think I asked rhetorically at the time, you know, where is he going to end up? We'll have to see. And I have to be honest, knowing that he was on a terrible team, the 17th mm-hmm. most effective passer in terms of, you know, quarterback ranking and and, uh, and official statistics, I right. assumed that somebody would pick him up. And and now we're in week one of NFL season, and he's still unemployed. I've taken the roller coaster with this whole thing, okay? When this first happened, I didn't think it was a big deal, okay? Like, when Colin Kaepernick first, um, like, I wasn't a 49ers fan. I wasn't necessarily a, a Colin Kaepernick fan. I wasn't necessarily following Colin Kaepernick or the 49ers and and not only that but like I'm somebody who's like you know I'm not all Yankee doodle dandy about patriotism like you know what I mean that's just that's just not who I am so the idea of someone you know sitting in protest as a national anthem to me when I first heard about that I was like you know okay whatever right but (laughs) but he knew right (laughs) he knew and um and that really got people fired up obviously we're not gonna you know rehash the whole thing here you know what's happened since has been disheartening to me in some ways in a lot of ways actually uh it's been infuriating in a lot of ways and um the, the the fact that we are here at week one of the NFL season and the team that I've rooted for for so long, the New York Jets, they, they're going into the season with three quarterbacks who are almost inarguably the worst three quarterback tandem or, or roster in the league. Um, that, you know, like it just it, it's a gut punch, you know, it's a gut punch um, because the ownership of the NFL has whether 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 they've they've had official collusion or unofficial or whatever they've all agreed that they're not going to give this man a job and um you know it's just it's tough man like for for me it's tough to separate you know it's it's it's, it's tough to separate all those things and so um like i don't want to step on step on your toes here cuz i know i know you're going to dig into this a little more but you know like i just where, where this has turned is I, I don't think Colin Kaepernick is going to play in the NFL again. Um, mm. Definitely not this season. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's disturbing. It really is. So you brought up some good points, and I'm glad you used the word collusion. Um, and I think to give people a bit of a historical background, that word in sports most often comes back to the best example of it was in baseball when uh, the rules in terms of collecting bargaining changed and people were allowed to be free agents and instead of being traded from one team to another, they could you know, uh, look for the best deal they could get for themselves and their families. And the owners conspired to refuse to sign any of the new free agents, in the, uh, particularly in the 1985 season, including such stars as Kirk Gibson. Background to that also had to do with black players feeling like having their future traded from one team to another felt too much like slavery. And most famously in the case of Kurt Flood of the St. Louis Cardinals, who refused to be traded to the Philadelphia Phillies because because of the reputation of racism in that city. Mm. Uh, and so I think you have to ask yourself, how is it, you know, each team maybe has some reason that they don't want to do it, but how can so many teams at the same time pass up on such a great talent who, and if you look at the 
coaches and the players that have played with him. People use this term distraction, like he'll be a distraction. The coaches and the players weren't distracted. You know, right. sometimes I feel like it has to do with owners like you know Biscotti of the, of the Baltimore Ravens. He's going to be too distracted by hearing about Black Lives Matter in order to give Kaepernick a chance to play. And, and, you know, I say that because when you saw when the Ravens realized that Flacco is not going to be healthy this year and their mm-hmm. backup quarterback is just not ready to start on an NFL roster, they was were seriously considering hiring Kaepernick. And the fact that Steve Biscotti had to make a statement asking for prayers as he considered that was just ridiculous. Like, when have they ever, you know, when Ray Rice was, you know, caught abusing his wife and they kept him on the team until the video was released he didn't ask for prayers you know what i mean this Mm -hmm. this this is is something else and we also see at least seven of the owners donated large amounts of money to the trump inauguration i think in terms of one million dollars in the case of biscotti and you have to ask what conversations have been going on you know so i think that's a very serious question was there an organized conversation to deny Kaepernick his opportunity to earn money as an NFL quarterback right and I think that's one of those things that we've we've gotten to a point right now where we can't prove it uh anything shy of that famous uh video that was placed in the uh the the tape recording from the Mitt Romney speech where he was (laughs) talking to his boosters and said something like you know 45 percent of the country just wants handouts remember that that Mm. video (laughs) unless there's something like that floating around we're never going to actually get concrete proof of the collusion um to get to to keep Kaepernick out of the NFL but um so here's here's where this 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 lies for me okay I was really excited. I was ready to root for the Ravens this year when the 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 term came when the news started to leak that they were heavily considering signing Colin Kaepernick. I was all about it. I'm like, yo, Baltimore, I'm here for it. Let's go. Whether he plays or not, just giving him a job because giving him a job ends this whole thing. You know, people talk about what distractions he's gonna bring. The he hasn't done anything that's going to be a distraction. He's one, said he wouldn't be doing the protest anymore and Two, uh, if you look at all of last season, he wasn't doing anything that was a distraction. You already mentioned, you know, his his teammates and coaches that played and coached with him. They speak glowingly of him. How he's a hard worker. People follow him. People like him. And uh, and 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 there was no distraction. So the distraction is the fact that this quarterback is not signed when Mark Sanchez, Geno Smith. Brock Osweiler. Brock Osweiler's gotten three jobs this offseason. <laughs> like, that's crazy, right? And so, uh, so, so the fact that Colin Kaepernick is sitting on the trash heap when, you know, guys like this are, are getting jobs is just, uh, you know, it's disgusting. And like you said, the, the, the Steve Viscotti press conference where he talked about, you know, pray for us. And then, you know, Ray Lewis uh, coming up. So, okay. The Steve Viscotti thing for me was a huge turning point, all right? Through private conversations, I've heard from very reliable sources that this was going to happen. The the, Colin, the, the, the Kaepernick to the Ravens was going to happen. And then Biscotti came out and made this whole public showing of being conflicted. And I'm like, wait a minute, what are you conflicted about? He said he wanted to talk to fans and talk to sponsors. And so... and. Maybe this is something that we should have an open mind about a conversation about. And I haven't heard one NFL owner step up to the plate and do that. Not one. Not one. And so this has put me in a tough place with the NFL. Like when I think about the NFL, I get a disgusted feeling in my stomach. Um, I don't I don't feel that feeling when I see players on the field playing. You know, I enjoy that. I enjoy that a lot. Um, but when I think about the NFL, like I just, I don't know how else to interpret that other than that the people who are the owners in the NFL are okay with, if not in favor of police brutality. And so I just, I I, I don't know quite how to reconcile that. I completely understand Terrence. And, you know, I have to admit, I had my own fantasy of Colin Kaepernick coming to Baltimore you know, I had already promised my wife I was going to get our purple jersey with the number seven on the back. I was planning to buy us tickets and bring my wife to a game in Baltimore. 
and, you know, I imagine Kaepernick making friends with Adam Jones. And, you know, while Biscotti is giving a million dollars to Donald Trump, Kaepernick has donated one million dollars in total to uh, small community groups, you know, $25,000, $50,000 at a time for all types of purposes, you know, for bringing healthy food uh, to poor communities, for immigrant support groups, for Know Your Rights camps, youth sports. You know, can you imagine what that type of investment of someone like Colin Kaepernick with his money, you know, could, could mean to organizations in Baltimore? That's why I just I found it so offensive. It just seems like, you know, NFL owners are perfectly happy to make money off of the work of black bodies, but won't invest in, respect, honor, or support black lives. And that's why I'm ready to announce right now I'm boycotting this NFL season. You know, maybe if Kaepernick ends up getting signed, maybe I'll check back in, see how he's doing, and decide. Man, that's uh, that's 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 dope, man. Um, you know, like I, I I've thought about this myself as well, and um. You know, I, I've, I've kind of come to the point where I, you know, I, I can't say that I'm doing an official boycott because I don't know what I expect. You know, like I, I don't know what I'm pursuing in terms of a remedy. Right. Like I don't like if, if someone gives Kaepernick a job to me, that's not going to remedy the fact that the owners have collectively uh, turned a blind eye towards the issue again all we're trying to do is get a conversation rolling here and it helps right it helps when white people even more so when rich white people are willing to join in the conversation and just say hey let's not brush this off as black paranoia let's 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 see what we can have done about this right and these the 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 owners of the nfl are they're people of influence and so it would help greatly to have them, you know, stand together and say, let's see what we can have done about this. And so, um, so again, like, I, I don't know what, you know, I, I don't know what conclusion I would be seeking by, by doing a boycott, me personally. Um, and so I, I haven't resigned to an official boycott, but I got to say, man, like I, uh, you know, it, it's one o'clock right now when we're recording this and my TV is off. Um, I just, I don't like, you know, in, in, pre, in prior seasons, I'll be sitting here like watching the red zone, counting down, like twiddling my fingers, like Mr. Burns. Uh, and, um, I just, I, I'm just not feeling it right now, man. I'm not feeling it. And now, you know, that does coincide with the fact that the jets are going to be God awful this year, but, <laughs> but that's not really, you know what I mean? But it, it, it certainly won't be the first time. And normally I'm right there, you know, uh, watching the misery. So, um, yeah, you know, I don't know, man. I just, uh, I'm not quite sure. I hear you, Terrence. And, you know, I think that is fair criticism. Like, uh, to what end is the boycott? But this issue isn't going anywhere. You know, just in the last couple of weeks, we saw the video of Michael Bennett, a football player who's taking part in these protests, get taken down, slammed to the ground, uh, threatened and arrested, uh, or at least cuffed and put in a paddy wagon by the Las Vegas police for basically being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I will say it is a way to express that disgust that you described. Uh, because I tell you this, Roger Goodell will not listen to this podcast. I'm under no illusion that he's a fan of the knife. But as part of an organized campaign, and, and this is an organized campaign, um, you see people like Sean King at the New York Daily News. Shout out to Sean King, man. He's been doing some fantastic work. Word. Sean King helping to uh, promote this uh, with the hashtag and everything else. And I'll tell you another thing. The NFL TV ratings for the opening game were double digits, something like 12% down from the previous season. And now there were hurricanes in South Florida and flooding in southern Texas, you know, two big football countries, so to speak. Um, you know, maybe because of climate change. But, you know, eventually some media workers uh, at the NFL or at Fox head, you know, headquarters, someone is going to have to explain this. And sooner or later, someone's going to bring the hashtag NFL boycott to the conversation and your voice will be heard. Right. And I recognize that this isn't the first or only time that the NFL has done something horrible. You know, there's been a pattern of disregard and disrespect uh, for the disposable heroes of football, previous NFL players, uh, you know, with regards to head trauma and 
stifling the evidence of chronic traumatic encephalopathy and other long-term effects with rampant drugs uh, like steroids, uh, and you know, as well as the rampant racism. And that includes the racist mascot uh, like the Washington Football Club. You know, my, my friend Gorov, who's a fan, uh, usually refuses to use the name Redskins and calls them the Washington Racists instead. That's awesome. But while it's not the first time, to me, it's just the most egregious. And we just have to say this will not stand without economic consequences. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that's all you can really ask for. Um, you know, I when it comes to uh, I, I have this conversation with, you know, several other, you know, black friends of mine um, and family members as well. And, you know, people all feel share in this frustration. Right. But it, it just seems that when you talk about doing something that is about hitting a big conglomerate like this in the pocket through thoughtful and organized action, people just don't seem to be as enthused about it. You know, people don't seem to be as enthused about it. People seem to be gung ho for marching and protesting. And I'm not against marching and protesting. I'm not against that stuff at all. But I just believe money talks, you know, money talks. And I've seen so many statistics on the spending power of black America. Right. And then you add in Latino America and then obviously white people are the majority of this country. So they have the largest spending power. And so if people are willing to withhold their dollars, withhold their viewership, OK, like you can bang any organization in the wallet. But, you know, people just don't seem to be willing to, uh, you know, to, to, to get on board with a movement. But I am very much in support of everyone who is uh, attempting to push this movement. And, you know, I encourage you guys to, you know, definitely continue to push this movement, um, push the boycott, uh, uh, hashtag it, you know, get everybody on board as much as possible. Um, and yeah, man, like I said, I, I think it's a great thing. But you, you talked about Michael Bennett and I want to I want to kind of touch on that. So so the thing with Michael Bennett, uh, for me, that was a rough day. Uh, that was a rough day because, um, and I, I want to pick my words carefully here. You're never glad that anything like that happens to anyone, but I'm glad that Michael Bennett and Martellus Bennett are people that are able to speak to something like this because what we see so often in response to this type of treatment is anger and frustration, but what I thought the Bennett brothers did uh, did such an amazing job of was expressing the hurt and the fear that comes along with going through that situation. Uh, it, it's 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 a tough thing to explain, and it's something that people will never understand unless you know you have to go through it. But but the the feeling and the thought that you know is today my day. Hmm. Is could 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 today be the day when I'm doing 67 and a 65 when I'm doing 70 and a 65, right? Whatever. And I get pulled over and this cop is just in a mood to start a fight or, you know, or, 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 or whatever. Right. Or, or, it, you know, I'm, I'm a large man. I'm a black man. I can't take these things off, but to some people, they make me a threat. And the, the, just having to wonder, am I going to make it to work? Am I going to make it home? You know, and he talked about when he was down uh, in, in the situation, being arrested, you know, what he what he thought about was getting to see his daughter again. The way that he was able to express that hurt and really humanize the situation like that touched me in a way that. Uh, it just really, really, really hit home because, you know, when we trace back to where a lot of this NFL movement started, which is last summer, around the time we had the killings of Philando Castile and Austin Sterling. And then, you know, we had the, the shooting that happened in Dallas. And it was just a very, very tense, very, very tense environment. Um, and I just remember, you know, I remember 
getting pulled over on the way to work one morning and just sitting there just thinking to myself, like, you know, you know, how am I going to survive this encounter? Um, And that's a feeling that no one should have. You know, no one should have no one should have to talk to their kids about how do you survive a routine traffic stop with law enforcement when you've done nothing wrong. Um, That's but that's the reality that African-Americans have to deal with. This is something that we have to educate our kids on. Um, You know, it's not right and it's not fair and it hurts and it's painful to deal with. But um, but it is our reality. And so, again, while I'm not ever wishing anything like this happens to anyone, I thought that, you know, Michael Bennett and his brother, when he was interviewed in the locker room, just did a great job expressing the emotion that comes along with it. Um, the anger will come. The anger was there, but I just thought that <clears throat> in front of the cameras, he articulated his hurt, right? Because mm-hmm. that's where a lot of this come from. It, it comes from a place of hurt. Um, and, and the, the hurt manifests itself in the frustration and, and all these other things. But, you know, you cannot forget that these people are human, right? They're human and they got, they got fears and hopes and dreams just like everybody else. And they got lives and families that they want to go home to. And, uh, you know, just knowing that at any moment you could quote unquote fit the description, you know, like it's right. just, you know, it's, 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 it's a tough thing. It's a tough pill to spot swallow, but you know, that is reality. Um, and you know, I, I think Michael uh, Bennett is an interesting character cause he's also the one that called, uh, or at least, you know, called out the importance of solidarity from his white colleagues, you know, his white players. And, mm-hmm. and I think we've seen that this season, perhaps, uh, as sort of an echo of the reverberation of the violence of the white supremacists in Charlottesville, but you know, in in multiple teams, the Eagles, Chris Long, the Seahawks, uh, Justin Britt, the Raiders, Derek Carr, all sort of put a hand on the shoulder of their kneeling colleagues to show their support. Whereas the the Browns, uh, Stephen Devalve actually took a knee, and you know that maybe I, I believe he's raising a, a black or interracial son. Uh, yes. So that that sort of shows why he felt so strongly about it. But uh, it was interesting to see that as an echo of what Michael Bennett was calling for and then to see him go through, you know, that what might be described as a potentially near-death experience. Yeah, um, that, you know, to me, okay, so not to go on a rabbit hole here, but um, the the inclusion of, of, of white players and white people in general is a very important part of this fight. Um, I don't feel it's right to necessarily ask for it because I, I don't know. I just, I think that it's a human decency thing. You know what I mean? Like it's one of those things where, you know, I can understand why a lot of white people don't speak out on racism because if you don't speak out and you quietly benefit from it, then Mm. it's like, whatever, I'll just be, um, you know, I'll just be neutral and whatever. Right. Like, you know, because it doesn't affect me. Right. Um, But what Chris Long did, um, I thought that was great. Right. Because Chris Long has had a history of being outspoken um, on issues of race and, and things like that. And just going as far as just to say, hey, that's not my experience, but maybe we should listen. And that is so powerful. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, it's not pretending that you, that you know the issue, but it's just, it's the human thing, right? It's the human thing. It's that, hey, this hasn't been my experience, but if these people were talking about it, maybe we should listen to it. And so, you know, Chris Long has been a champion of that idea. And to me, I've always been a big fan of Chris Long for that. Hmm. Um, what, uh, I believe Sean DeValve, is that his name, um, from the Browns? Actually, I misspoke. It's Seth DeValve. What he did, I was a huge fan of that because, you know, again, that's just showing solidarity with your teammates and the things they might be experiencing. And because that's something that's real in his home. Um, uh, Again, it's just like what we just talked about. It's realizing that, hey, you know, I'm going to have to have a conversation with my kids. You know, uh, he's an NFL tight end. okay? so his kids are probably going to be big people. Right. And so if you have a son and he's a big man and if he just happens to look black to whatever officer happens to be encountering him on whatever day, guess what? 
that puts him in the danger zone, right? And so as someone who, you know, obviously did not grow up having to deal with these issues, but if he just has open eyes about what's happening right in front of him in the world, he knows that he has to talk to his son and have that conversation. You know, he will one day have to talk to his kids about, hey, man, you know, listen, this is something that is very real. You know, when you encounter the police, I just want you to come home. You know what I mean? And so, like, that's a that's that's something that he must have realized. And he decided he's going to put himself right smack in the middle of that. And so um, I was very happy with that. Now, what I didn't like, because anytime you get uh, a movement that starts to splinter and lose its focus a little bit, you get things like, okay, now if you noticed around that huddle of Cleveland Browns player kneeling and praying, there were a lot of guys standing, putting hands on the shoulders of those guys. And a lot of those guys were black guys. And I did not like that. Okay, now I'm not the guy who's like, okay, listen, if you're black, you have to do X, Y, Z. I'm not like that. But I just felt like, okay, you know, Chris Long putting a hand on the shoulder of uh, Malcolm Jenkins, to me, that fit, that was appropriate. That was like, I'm not doing your thing that you're doing, but I'm showing you that I'm standing with you and I'm supporting you. But I just felt like for those Cleveland players, including uh, the quarterback, Kaiser, you know, standing and, and, and putting a, a hand on guys' shoulders, I'm just like, to me, that's just like saying, okay, hey, hey, uh, locker room, I'm still down with you, but hey, coach, I don't want to get in trouble with you. And I'm like, you know, this is one of those things where you got to be in or you got to be out. And, um, and, and then with Derek Carr and Khalil Mack, that – what they did got me so hot. Hmm. Like, I was angry when I saw what happened with D- Derek Carr and Khalil Mack. Now, do you recall Khalil Mack making any sort of protest throughout last season? Right. I, I don't recall Khalil Mack making any sort of protest throughout last season. Okay? But during one of the during the anthem for one of the preseason games— Derek Carr decides he wants to go up. Oh, while Marshawn Lynch is sitting in protest of the anthem, Derek Carr decides he wants to go up and put his arm around Khalil Mack. And when they asked him about it after the game, you know, he said, you know, I just wanted to show unity and I just wanted to, you know, show black kids and white kids that, hey, Khalil's my friend. He's black and I'm white. And, you know, black kids and white kids can be friends. And I was like, hold up, man. Hold up. I'm like, this is where you lose the movement, right? This is where you lose a movement once it starts splintering into bull crap like this. Because you don't need to tell black kids and white kids they can be friends. Like, what is this? Remember the Titans? Like, come on, man. Like, this is, we're not that far backwards. And this is about specific issues, man. And like, once you start trying to just make it about some general unity crap, that's when you kill any potential to accomplish something. So, you know, um, I just I think, you know, people just got to stay focused with trying to uh, trying to to show support about, you know, what we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know, the inequalities of police brutality and things in the justice system. And obviously, police brutality is just a a branch on the tree of racism. And, and the other and the other thing that happened that influenced that, obviously, we touched on for a second was uh, what we saw in Charlottesville. And uh you and I were talking about this a little while ago, and and uh, and you had said to me that you know you didn't have as much to say about it, but you were curious to to hear what I had to say about it. Uh, and do you want to sort of articulate and tell me why why you felt that way? Yeah, because so I felt like with what happened in Charlottesville, right? I felt like this was one of the times when uh, when in America when white people are forced to wear the stain of race, right? Like black people are forced to wear it all the time, right? It's in, it's in the, uh, the, the constant paranoia, right? It's in the, you know, the profiling and all of those things, right? Like black people have to wear the stain of race all the time. But when Charlottesville happened, um, you know, the images that were plastering around, you know, it just, it was, it forced, I felt like it, it forced a lot of people to kind of take some stances and there were a lot of stances taken um but like i said i felt like this is one of the times when you know it kind of forced white people to wear the stain of race and i just wanted to hear uh you know thoughts and perspectives for coming from you on you know 
you know, what it was like watching the events unfold, what it was like seeing some of the outrage, both the real outrage and the fake outrage. Um, you know, some of the statements that came and, you know, obviously 45 stuck his foot in his mouth like only he possibly could. And, um, yeah, I just want to get your take on how all, all that stuff went down. Right. And I don't know if I have a typical view of this because, you know, um, I, I grew up uh, – not around a lot of overt racism, but in Maryland, there is a lot of racism and there is a lot of neo-Nazi and neo-Confederate history there. And so, you know, I remember going to counter protests for Nazi and neo-Confederate movements, you know, growing up and in high school and college. Um, And this wasn't me, but some friends of mine would regularly, you know, look out for uh, white supremacist punk concerts because they were in sort of anti-racist punk movements, and they would go and start fights and try to shut these things down. Um, And so that wasn't me, but I always grew up understanding the moral question of what does it mean to punch a Nazi sort of thing. Um, Mm. But, you know, that being said, I I think that, like you said, seeing that white supremacist violence directed against uh, a mixed group, but, you know, since it's Charlottesville, it was a predominantly white group. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately, the woman that lost her life was a young white woman that a lot of people could uh, sort of sympathize with as someone that could be in their family, you know? Right, right. And so I, I think there's a very easy response to that for a lot. You know, it's very easy for Americans to be against Nazism, right? We 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 mm-hmm. lost a lot of lives fighting Nazism in my grandfather's generation, you know? My grandfather uh, served in World War II, you know, and I have a family that fled Germany, uh, luckily right before the rise of Nazism that was Jewish. So uh, I think that's easy. The harder part is really to, to step out and understand and, and attack white supremacy as an institution, you know. Right. And, and I think that's what we saw is that Donald Trump has benefited perhaps more than almost any uh, post-slavery president from the institution of white supremacy, and so I think yeah. that's why it was very difficult for him to be very, to be clear and to say the easy thing, uh, which was that you know white supremacy is wrong. He could barely say that Nazism was wrong. One of the interesting, so I, I think that's our work, you know, as sort of uh, white people who are trying to listen and hear and to be in solidarity is to to go a step further and and to show love and support for uh for black america and and to really be critical for white supremacy and not to as you say silently benefit from it which is uh probably very easy to do and and i'll give one example you know i've had money in various bank accounts and we've seen over the years how uh uh how banks like uh you know bank of america or uh what was the one that very recently just had that big scandal um, was it Wells Fargo? Wells Fargo, exactly. How how these banks have used their power in ways that, that really aren't consistent with, with my values. And so I'm closing down a Bank of America account. And, you know, I live in Baltimore, and we have a small locally owned black-owned bank, which there's not many in the country. So I'm starting up a Harbor uh, Bank account. Um, and, and I think that's a very small gesture, but it's part of being deliberate about, you know, what is our response to this and not just the easy thing. Um, and I will say the other interesting thing that happened as a Baltimorean is how swift and effective the for a change the Baltimore city government was in taking down uh, the monuments to the Confederacy that were around the city. And th- there weren't many, but they've been there a long time. You know, I grew up around the corner from Robert E. Lee Park, and I remember organizing a senior cut day at my school to go to Robert E. Lee Park and inviting, and I had no sense of how... You know what I'm saying? Insulting that could be to somebody to invite them to Robert E. Lee Park instead of going to school. So, right. so we've you know we've done away with them. And, and someone I ran track against in high school, Brandon Scott, uh, he he was uh, one of the politicians that undertook that. So I send my recognition props out to Brandon Scott for taking part in that. So it's sort of a long answer to say that uh, there are, there's easy things to do and there's the harder things to do. And and I think you know we got to challenge and keep ourselves honest to step up and, and do the harder part of that undermining white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. Nah, man. I, I, I think that's dope because, um, you're right. I mean, like, like I said, it's, it, you know, you made the great point, you know, the young lady that was killed, uh, when that butthole ran his car 
into that group of people. Um, you know, she was someone who America could look at and easily relate to, easily empathize. You know, the thing that uh, people who I know who consider them quote unquote consider themselves quote unquote conservative, the thing that they killed Obama for when he said he looked at Trayvon Martin and said that could have been his son, right? That's the way people felt when they saw the young lady who was killed um, in Charlottesville, and that made it easy. For people to relate uh, and it made them easy for them to sympathize. And really, I think, you know, ultimately, like, that's just what it's what it, what it comes down to. Right. It's like, you know, when will we get to a point where we feel the same way about seeing her get killed that we felt about seeing Trayvon get killed? You know, and I think that that's, um, you know, we're obviously a long ways away from that. But I think if we can get to a point where we start to recognize that that is the issue, then, um, you know, I think we'll start getting somewhere. For sure. And, and you know, it, it's, again, sort of getting off the point maybe, but I do think it's important. I've, you know, since I came back to Baltimore, I ran into and, and had the chance to have some conversations with uh, the author D. Watkins, who wrote The Cook-Up uh, and The B-Side. Um, and, you know, he's made himself very accessible, and, and he made this point about the value of mentorship. And I can see him mentoring a lot of the young authors and artists and students in the city. And and I think that's also the other part, I think, to uh, to white America, but also to people that have just been successful um, in trying to deconstruct not just white supremacy, but also inequality as an institution in America, is to, to show love and to offer mentorship and support to young people that do not have the stability uh, in their families, in their communities, in their neighborhoods, that have uh, uh, figures that could serve as mentors, which, you know, I was blessed to have mentors growing up. And so that's a challenge that he's made to me that I'm trying to to step up and to honor that challenge. And, I, and I'll, you know, make that to everyone else that's listening to this as well. Dope, man. You know, I, you know just, and real quick, like, I, I, we're kind of going down a rabbit hole a little bit here. But, um, but I, I agree with that. That's a, a tremendous point. Um, when I was in high school, I worked at, uh, you know, a summer camp called Leap. And, you know, I, I remember just from a very early age, I always thought it was important to role model. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I never considered myself to be anyone super important, but I always did know that as a young kid, you're looking up to the bigger kids. And even, um, you know, even now today, you know, some of the kids that I had as camp counselors, you know, I keep in contact with them on Facebook and things. And I just feel good when I see those guys doing well. Um, you know, and some of them reach out to me and be like, Hey man, you know, I just, you know, I was watching you when I was younger and, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, that definitely set a good path for me. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's all, you know, all you want, you know, all you can do is, is try to set an example for, you know, somebody who is watching you to help make some, uh, something better. So, you know, just be conscious of that, whoever, anybody and everyone that's listening to this, just be conscious of that, you know, people are watching you and, um, you can set the example for how they should, you know, try to, try to be, try to treat people and all that stuff. Wow. So, you know, I wanted to get into a discussion with you about, what you spend a lot of your time do, doing these days, which is on wrestling and the political economy of wrestling. But you know what? We've had what? such a good conversation. I don't know if we have time for that this time. We may have to table that conversation. You know what? I, I think you're actually, I think you're right. And we can definitely dive into the political economy of wrestling because the beautiful thing about that is it's kind of an evergreen topic. You know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's always going to be here as long as Vince McMahon's alive. So, um, <laughs> So yeah, wrestling's not going anywhere. We can do that another time because, you know, anytime we get together, we make magic, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and for anyone who is a wrestling fan, you should definitely check out the uh, Talking About Wrestling with uh, Terrence Williams uh, when when you're done with this podcast. But Terrence, you're not off the hook yet because, okay. because as always, I'm going to ask you for your uh, recommendation, either a work of art, a performance, an album, or a book. That, that you want to share with me and my audience? Oh, man. All right. Um, Did you forget here? I'll give you, give you a moment to think because I'm going to make my recommendation, which is actually one of D. Watkins' mentees, uh, a book by Kondwani Fidel. Uh, he went to the uh, high school rival of mine. He went to Baltimore City College. I went to Baltimore Polytechnic Institute. And the book is called Raw Wounds. Uh, and it is a very raw book. Uh, uh, what? Well, I'm trying to get a chance to talk to him about it a little bit more. Um, but it's really about 
kind of uh, the pain and experience of of growing up in East Baltimore and and finding a way to articulate that and to make and to be successful with that. And he's someone who's had uh, several uh, pieces come out on the internet uh, recently. He's getting a little bit of of his proper respect. So. Shout out to Kondwani Fidel and anyone out there, please pick up Royal Wounds and, and, and give it a read. And I'll have to send one over to you because I don't know if you can find it up there in Connecticut. Yeah, definitely. You send it over to me, I'll read it for sure, man. I've been trying to get more into reading physical books just for the simple reason of, like, like I said, I, I do believe in, in role modeling. And, you know, I have, a, I have a toddler, right? So my daughter's almost two. And she sees me with my phone in my hands all the time. And I don't want her to be obsessed with her phone like I am. <laughs> and so what I want, I want her to see me with a book in my hands. But I just... I don't sit down and read physical books because I, I don't feel like I have time. And I usually listen to like, you know, podcasts or, or audio books, you know, as I'm traveling to work, I have a, you know, a nice 40 or so minute commute to work. So I get some good listening done. So um, I'll send this up to you cause it is a quick read. So I think you'll appreciate it for that purpose. Yo, you send it to me. I'll knock it out. Got it. Um, so w- if we stick with the Baltimore theme, um, you know, I, a lot of you guys may have heard this book already. Maybe you have read it already. But uh, Between the World and Me um, by Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, it was uh, I just I really enjoyed it, man. I actually, again, the audiobook version, I listened to it uh, on the plane. Um, I was going to California for uh, my wife's cousin's wedding. And, um, you know, I knocked it out in what is that, like a five hour plane ride. And uh, it just it was just very enriching, um, you know. He, he tells the story of being from Baltimore and, um, and, and, and as a black person, you grow up in your life with, with fear. You grow up with the fear of getting beat by your parents. Uh, you grow up with the fear of potentially, you know, getting beat up outside because you may walk into somebody who wants to start a fight with you for no good reason. Um, you walk, you live with the fear of getting beat up by the police and you, you learn, um, you know, you just learn to live through that, through that, through that fear. Fear just becomes such a big part of your life as uh, as a black person. And um, you know, he tells the story of going off to college. He goes to Howard, which he calls the mecca, and uh, he meets black people from all different types of backgrounds. And it just becomes such a mind opening experience for him. And um, you know, he just he, he ends up you know getting married and having a child and 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 all of that stuff. And he really just talks about like I'm not going to spoil the book for you. But um, just the it, it's 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 a nonfiction, so there's no like quote unquote happy ending. But uh, he does have some of the some experiences in this book that I just personally related to so much. And um, you know, the experience that he has in Paris is one that I might actually be looking to have because uh, you know one of the things that stuck with me is I had always kind of had this fear of going to Europe because. I always felt like this, like, look, you know, the white people here are originally from Europe and if white people here are racist, not all, of course, but if, uh, and he kind of talks about having a similar apprehension about going there and his experience in Paris completely changed, uh, his mindset and, and his life going forward. And so, um, I just, I really love that. You know what I mean? I, I love that. Um, cause I'm a firm believer that no matter what's happened in your life up to this point, you're in control of what happens going forward. So, um, yeah, so Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, I definitely absolutely recommend it. And, uh, yeah. So that's that's the second book so far on the podcast that has had two recommendations, um, the other being Paulo Freire's uh, Pedagogy of the Press. So if you're out there, if you need two books, those are the two, Pedagogy of the Press and Ta-Nehisi Coates' uh, Between the World and Me. And if you need a third, uh, Kondwani Fidel's Raw Wounds. All right. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate the time. This was a this was a good talk. Gave me a lot to think about. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for everybody uh, who who listened. Uh, this is you know, if you guys are listeners of this pod, um, you know, there's always this is a place to come for intelligent, insightful conversation. And so, you know, keep supporting. Share it on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at tw talking about. Um, I don't always get into intelligent stuff on Twitter, but, <laughs> but I'm always open to be engaged in good conversations. So. All right, my friend. Take care. All right, man.
Thanks again for joining us. And I should also thank Terrence Williams, not only for graciously joining me on the show today, but also for bringing up a Ta-Nehisi Coates audiobook. Uh, I recently read his article in The Atlantic calling Donald Trump America's first white president. And, you know, Coates probably didn't realize he was talking to me, but he directly contradicted a point I'd made in an earlier episode when I'd said that Trump probably has no true ideology or moral compass. Uh, The Atlantic was also gracious enough to publish an audio version of that article, so I wanted to share a clip of that with you and uh, cede the point to Coates. In uh, retrospect, I do think he is correct. And to close out the show, you're going to hear Anthony Hamilton's Ain't Nobody Worrying. So thanks again for joining us, and hope you tune in again next time. It is often said that Trump has no real ideology, which is not true. His ideology is white supremacy in all its truculent and sanctimonious power. Trump inaugurated his campaign by casting himself as the defender of white maidenhood against Mexican rapists, only to be later alleged by multiple accusers and by his own proud words to be a sexual violator himself. White supremacy has always had a perverse sexual tint. Trump's rise was shepherded by Steve Bannon, a man who mocks his white male critics as cucks. The word, derived from cuckold, is specifically meant to debase by fear and fantasy. The target is so weak that he would submit to the humiliation of having his white wife lie with black men. That the slur cuck casts white men as victims aligns with the dicta of whiteness, which seek to alchemize one's profligate sins into virtue. So it was with Virginia slaveholders claiming that Britain sought to make slaves of them. So it was with marauding Klansmen organized against alleged rapes and other outrages. So it was with a candidate who called for a foreign power to hack his opponent's email and who now, as president, is claiming to be the victim of the single greatest witch hunt of a politician in American history. In Trump, white supremacists see one of their own. Only grudgingly did Trump denounce the Ku Klux Klan and David Duke, one of its former Grand Wizards. And after the clashes between white supremacists and counter-protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia in August, Duke, in turn, praised Trump's contentious claim that both sides were responsible for the violence. To Trump, whiteness is neither notional nor symbolic, but is the very core of his power. Ain't nobody worrying when the shots fly high and the sirens start to ring. Ain't nobody worrying when the kids die young and the mothers are suffering. Ain't nobody praying when they kneel down low, all they're doing is tying the shoestrings. Ain't nobody worrying no more, no more, no more, no more. The homeless have nowhere to turn when their stomach starts to burn cause they ain't got food to eat. How the children gonna learn when they gotta take turns cause they ain't got books to read. Then our babies turned to crime, started getting high cause the job train's kinda slow. Cause ain't nobody worrying, no more, no more, no more, no more, no more. When the tears start to fall and you can't see your way, just will carry on, come on. Oh, no.